the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter i am one of your hosts jeff better known as Benjamin fish and i'm your other host emmett better known as poor quentin and welcome to our 57th episode of the not a cast entitled in the court of the crimson king an analysis of a game of thrones sansa 5 in which sansa stark begs the newly crowned king joffrey for mercy for her father eddard and Joffrey agrees. Whoa, wow. That, that was another close call, man. Glad that's taken care of. As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warren of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragons, Prince, I did it again, I fucking did it again. So Nelson, let us know if you want to remain the Prince of Dragonstone, or if you'd like to be my personal Prince of Dragonstone. Scarlet, the other red woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby, the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart, the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah Warden, Lord Micah, Warden of the West, and the Kraken's Bane, and finally, Lord James, the gym that was promised. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we will potentially be talking about all published books, that is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lady B-Word, who asks, Listening to your latest Sansa episode made me wonder something. Hypothetically, if the Tyrells had been in the Lannisters' position, let's say Mace was born female, do you think they would have handled Sansa any differently at the arrest of her father? Like the Lannisters, they are a very manipulative group. I feel they would have behaved similarly in trying to get Sansa to do their bidding. I'm curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the Tyrells are, to a large degree, as as Dantos describes them, Lannisters with roses. They're much (laughs) friendlier, and they're not as sadistic, certainly, as many of the Lannisters are. And I have a fondness from afar for Willis and Garland, Tyrell. But... They are definitely very manipulative. They they work together as a group better than the Lannisters to achieve their aims. And they're ultimately willing to cut anyone out that doesn't fit their big picture, as they prove with Sansa and the Storm of Swords. So while I don't think you get anything remotely like Joffrey pointing a crossbow at Sansa from atop the Iron Throne, or even Cersei's drunken rants at the Blackwater with the Tyrells, I do think something like Cersei manipulating Sansa into writing that letter by pretending that she loves her. I think that's something that's very much within the Tyrell wheelhouse. Yeah, for sure. I, I think the Tyrells have their reputation outshines their actual conduct in the books. And that's a point that's made explicit in Storm. And then like even in the Feast for Crows where Cersei, who's obviously going down very dark mental pathways, she's not necessarily wrong to be like the Tyrells are really, really you know manipulative and they're very concerned about advancing Tyrell interests at the expense of the realm. And the reason why this gets some uh, sustenance, so to speak, is is that Kevin Lannister makes the same point in the epilogue and that he start, he thinks something to the effect of, I sort of realize now why Cersei was so upset with the Tyrells and was so thinking that they were trying to like manipulate and grasp their way into further and further power. Now, I think like the one thing that we can be fairly confident about is that I don't think we'd have a situation where Ned Stark is suddenly uh, executed at, at Joffrey's orders, I think that that would be kind of stopped at the very beginning. I think even like I don't think that Littlefinger would have the same sort of success with the with the the Tyrell boys, Garland, Willis, or Loras. I think that Joffrey is 
already a little bit of a sadist and very much a, a psychopath in the narrative already. But he's also very young, too. He's 13 years old. Loris Terrell is 16. Garland is in his 20s. And Willis is, I think, near 30 is how he's described in A Storm of Swords. I don't think that Littlefinger would have this same sway with them. Although, if you want to counterpoint that, you can point to what Littlefinger talks about with uh, Sansa in A Storm of Swords, where he talks about how he manipulated the Tyrells into joining the Lannister cause, while also manipulating them to look at Joffrey and look at him as a character who was likely a psychopath and likely evil as well. So could they manipulate the Tyrells into killing Ned? I think no, although the case could be made that Littlefinger would try, and I think ultimately he would fail. It's a fair point that Littlefinger managed to manipulate the Tyrells when he was uh, negotiating with them to join the Lannister coalition, but he was manipulating them into things that were ultimately in their own interest and made sense for all the parties involved. Killing Ned Stark, as will be elaborated upon at length, is just a terrible move for the Lannisters politically and ultimately in terms of military strategy. So I don't think that Tyrells could be talked into something that obviously self-sabotaging the way that Joffrey could be. So yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. Littlefinger and a lot of other manipulators would have a lot less to work with. I think Sansa would be treated more gently and so kind of emerge less scarred from her experience in King's Landing, but I don't think she had, she'd have any more control over her future. And I think the the wounds of the eventual betrayal by the Tyrells would, would surface just as they do in the narrative that we got. Yeah, 100% agree. So thank you, Lady Beaver, for the question. Really appreciate it. As always, if you'd like to ask us questions that we will answer on this podcast, you're welcome to check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF. You can support us for as little as $1 a month. $5 a month gets you our monthly bonus episodes. $10 a month gets you the ability to ask us questions. So check us out again at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF. We've got a great little community operating there. So this is the synopsis for Game of Thrones Sansa 5. So you guys remember all those fabulous hunting tapestries that Robert hung on the walls of the Red Keep after taking the dragon skulls down? You know, the ones that Ned looked at specifically when he was sitting up on the Iron Throne when he was hand of the king and there when Robert was away hunting? Well, wouldn't you know it, but those same tapestries have now been stripped off the walls and dropped in an untidy heap in the corner of the room. This, my friends... This is regime change, and it only gets worse from here on out. Sansa stands near the door of the Red Keep unescorted. Yes, unescorted. She's been given freedom of the castle so long as she doesn't go past the walls of the Red Keep. And Sansa was happy to make that promise. It wasn't like she could really go that far anyways. Janice Lint, garbage man at fuckboy, has his gold cloaks guarding every gateway in and out of the Red Keep. And beyond even that, where would Sansa go? At least here in the Red Keep, she could pick flowers or pray at the castle Godswood. But back in the Red Keep itself, it's the first court session of good King Joffrey's reign, and Sansa is, you know, a bit nervous about it all. For the moment, it's the presence of the gold cloaks and the red cloaks in the hall, but it will become much more nerve-wracking later on. And as for the audience for this court session, well, it's a bit threadbare. Where Robert's courts had a hundred nobles, knights, and small folk always crowded around there, this one has a paltry 20 high and lesser lords and knights. And of course, because this is the beginning of the Lannister regime in King's Landing, they ain't going to allow the poors to be present, right, Emmett? Right? Certainly not. As Tywin says, you don't allow the poors to sit beside you at the high bench. Absolutely not. That's just, it's, it's so gross. So Sansa wades into the mix of these 20 nobles and tries to greet them, but none of them want anything to do with her. Lord Giles fakes a coughing spell. And when Sir Dantas Holler, who may turn out to be important in books two and three, we'll have to see about that, tries to call out a drunken greeting towards her, 
Sir Balin Swan, Kingsguard Knight, whispers into his ear and he turns away. And again, where the fuck was everyone? Where had everyone gone? Where were the friendly faces that greeted her during Robert's reign? It was as if she had become a ghost, dead before her time. Poetic Sansa. But up ahead at the small council, Pycelle sits at the table alone. Because who the fuck wants to be near the Grand Molester? I fucking hate him, man. I just hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. <sighs> but then Varys scurries into the hall, his slippered feet making no sound. A moment later, Littlefinger, the defiler, comes striding in, shit-eating grins spreading across his asshole of a mouth. He pauses to speak with Sir Balin and Sir Dantas Hollard. Yep. More on that come a clash of kings, but all the new entreaties into the Red Keep make Sansa more and more nervous. I shouldn't be afraid, she told herself. I have nothing to be afraid of. It will all come out well. Joff loves me, and the queen does too. She said so. Oh, Sansa, life is not a song. But before we get to all that, Joffrey enters to the Herald's Cry following Sir Barristan Selmy with Sir Ares Oakheart escorting Cersei and Sir Boros Blunt next to Joffrey. With Jamie all violating his Kingsguard vows and leading an army of war criminals in the Riverlands, all six of the seven white swords are now present in the Red Keep. And then Joffrey, man, that boy is resplendent in his black velvet slashed with a crimson and cloth of gold cape and crown, which Cersei, <sighs> okay, we get it, but we'll get to all that. Joffrey notices Sansa, smiles, and gives her a nod. He then mounts his throne and orders Pycelle to read the decrees. Pycelle retrieves a slip of paper from his sleeve, and in lieu of going through every ponderous thing that Pycelle will read, and Emma's going to do a great job getting to those details in a few minutes, I'm going to bullet point here. So, number one, the Great Houses, the Starks, the Tullys, the Baratheons, the Tyrells, and the Martells, and their families, as well as those who are in open, quote-unquote, rebellion against the crown, are to come to King's Landing to swear fealty to Joffrey. And at the very end of the pronouncement, Pycelle reads out that the Starks are to come, and Sansa is pretty surprised to hear that Arya's name is mentioned leading her to correctly surmise that Arya has not been captured, although leading her to incorrectly surmise that Arya has escaped onto Winterfell. So sad. Point two, Tywin Lannister will become Hand of the King again. No surprise there. Point three, Cersei will replace the quote-unquote traitor Stannis on the small council. <sighs> Point four, Janos Slint will be raised to lordship. And from there, let's pick up the narrative again. While naming Cersei to the small council provokes some mutterings because girls doing politics? Whoa, bros, am I right? But come on, we know that's the real reason why the nobles are upset about that. They don't give a shit that Cersei's a villain here. At least not yet. I sell drones on about how the king's life is important to protect, blah, blah, blah. And oh, Sir Barristan, could you please step forward? Barristan had been standing still as stone, quiet as still. Wait a minute, the wrong character. He comes to life bending the knee to Joffrey, but then Cersei strangely orders him to take his helmet off. Though he doesn't understand why, he complies. And then Cersei does hashtag just Cersei things. You have served the realm long and faithfully, good sir, and every man and woman in the Seven Kingdoms owes you thanks. Yet now I fear your service is at an end. It is the wish of the king and council that you lay down your heavy burden. Uh, what? Barristan doesn't understand, but Lord Janus hates saying that. I really hate saying Lord Janus. makes it plain. Her grace is trying to tell you that you are relieved as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Well, hey, hold up there for a second, Barrison says. Kingsguard serve for life. Only death can part a white cloak from his duty. Whose death, Sir Barristan? The Queen's voice was soft as silk, but her words carried the whole length of the hall. Yours or the King's? Joffrey puts in that Barristan let Robert die and that Sir Grandfather is too old, which... I mean, I give, I mean, you guys all know this. I give Barrison a lot of shit, but come the fuck on. 
Barristan couldn't save Robert from Robert. I mean, I know it's not like Cersei and Joffrey are really operating in good faith here, but I just had to editorialize just for a, a quick second on on behalf of Barristan Selmy. Look, look at me being a good person for once. For once, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. Protest too much. <laughs> I, I, yes. Well, Barristan stares on up at Joffrey and Sansa starts to see Barristan's age. It's really the blocking of the scene and it's really good on Martin's part. Your grace, he said, I was chosen for the white swords in my 20 and third year. It was all I had ever dreamed. From the moment I first took sword in hand, I gave up all. I gave up my claim to my ancestral keep. The girl I was to wed married my cousin in my place. I had no need of lands or sons. My life would be lived for the realm. Sir Gerald Hightower himself heard my vows to ward the king with all my strength, to give my blood for his. I fought beside the White Bull and Prince Lewin of Dorne, beside Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, before I served your father. I helped shield King Eris and his father Jaehaerys before him. Three kings. And all of them dead, Littlefinger puts in like the red-rimmed ring of an asshole that he is. Cersei tells him that he's done. You done, kid. You done, old man. Oh, and Jaime will become Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. The Kingslayer? The false knight who profaned his blade with the blood of the king he had sworn to defend? Cersei goes all, how dare you say this extremely true thing about our dear brother and uh, your king's own blood? Hmm. But Varys has kinder words than Cersei or Littlefinger. He says that Tywin has put a nice Lannisport retirement villa aside for Barrison next to the sea with servants. Sounds pretty nice, right? <laughs> yeah, fuck that shit. Barrison has some thoughts about that. He starts stripping off his armor and white cloak and then fires a sabo round at this quote-unquote offer. A hall to die in and men to bury me. I thank you, my lords, but I spit on your pity. I am a knight. I shall die a knight. A naked knight, Littlefinger says, holding up his hands, looking for high fives from the bros all around him. Everyone laughs at Littlefinger's quips, and Sansa, yes, she's still in this chapter, thought you guys had forgotten about her, thinks that the laughter probably hurt the worst, given all the goddamn shit Barristan has done on behalf of the realm. But then Barristan draws his sword. Everyone starts gasping while the Kingsguard knights move forward to defend their king, but Barristan freezes them all with a look, and I love that. And then, Jesus, I'm reading all of Barristan's lines here, aren't I? But they're really so good. Have no fear, sir. Your king is safe, no thanks to you. Even now, I could cut through the five of you as easy as a dagger cuts cheese. If you would serve under the Kingslayer, not a one of you is fit to wear the white. Barristan tosses the sword at the feet of the Iron Throne. Here, boy, melt it down and add it to the others if you'd like. It will do you more good than the swords in the hands of these five. Perhaps Stannis, St sorry, will chance to sit on it while and when he takes your throne. Barrison marches out of the hall, head held high to the silence of everyone. Sound only returns once Barrison has exited the Red Keep. Joffrey goes all Joffrey, complaining about being called a boy, and he was talking about Stannis. The nerve! Varys tries to soothe Joffrey, but yet. Joffrey wants Barrison seized and questioned. No one moves at first until Lord Janoslint says his gold cloaks will take, a, will take care of it, which, <laughs> I wonder how that's going to go for you guys. But with Barristan now gone, they could return to council business. Barristan's out of a job now, and so they're going to need to appoint a new Kingsguard knight. And who should they appoint? Well, Joffrey and Cersei have already thought that one out. The king and his council have determined that no man in the Seven Kingdoms is more fit to guard and protect his grace than his sworn shield, Sander Clegane. Does Sander want the job? Yeah, sure, he'll take it. He's got no wife or lands, but he ain't going to be a sir. No fucking way about that. 
Sir Boros Blunt does his best shocked noble routine and cries about how the Kingsguard have always been knights. Until now, Sander rasps to Boros' cowardly silence. I like my Sander voice. I'm going to work on it, though. Uh, but yes, by the way, did I mention that Sansa's in this chapter, too? She's been occupying the watcher role for most of this chapter, but now she takes on an active role. As the King's steward moves forward, Sansa realizes that her time has come. She has to move. She dressed appropriately, having redyed the dress Arya ruined with a blood orange black. And she tried to make herself as beautiful as possible with her hair and jewelry before deciding on simplicity, a silver chain and straight hair brushed red. The Herald calls out for any final requests or petitions from the king, and, Sa- and Sansa thinks, now, I must do it now. Gods give me courage. She steps forward, feeling everyone looking at her. I must be as strong as my lady mother. She calls out to Joffrey, your grace. Joff hears her and beckons her forward. He smiles as she approaches, and Sansa thinks that Joffrey does love her. He does. She stops in front of Sir Barrison's white cloak and kneels. Cersei asks Sansa if she has some business for king and council. She does have business for them. As it please your grace, I ask mercy for my father, Lord Eddard Stark, who was the hand of the king. Cersei sighs and talks about how disappointed she is. Pycelle, the Grand Molester, points in that Ned is a terrible, terrible traitor. Varys goes for the you-know-not-what-you're-asking from Matthew 2022, but Sansa doesn't give a shit about them. She looks at Joffrey. Sansa starts to thank Joffrey, but Pycelle talks about how treason is a noxious weed and must be torn out lest new traitors grow up all around you, and I would like to punch the twice traitors Pycelle in the fucking mouth, but Littlefinger asks Sansa whether she denies her father's crimes, and no, she doesn't deny them. She knows he has to be punished, and she knows that her father probably regrets what happened. Ned was friend to Robert, and he never wanted to be hand until Robert asked him to be. Sansa thinks that her dad was lied to by Renly, true, or Lord Stannis, not true, or somebody else. That motherfucker is Littlefinger. Joffrey leans forward and asks why Ned said that he wasn't the king. Well, his leg was broken, and he was in a lot of pain, and he was taking milk of the poppy for the pain, and everyone knows that the milk of the poppy clouds people's brains. A child's faith, Varys intones. Such sweet innocence, and yet... They say wisdom oft comes from the mouth of babes. Treason is treason, Pycelle says like a man well acquainted with the concept. Joffrey looks to Cersei for guidance, and Cersei looks back to Sansa and looks her over before telling her that if her dad confesses to treason, then they might know that he has repented. Joffrey rises from the Iron Throne, and Sansa hopes and prays that Joffrey is good and kind and noble. And spoilers, Sansa, this is going to be so hard for you, but he's not any of those things. He asks if she has anything more to say. She doesn't, save for, as you love me, you do this kindness. Well, Joffrey is so fucking moved by all this that he agrees to Sansa's plea. He'll do as Sansa asks, but Ned has to do something in return for him. Your father has to confess his treason. He has to confess and say that I am the king, or there will be no mercy for him. Sansa's heart soars. He will. Oh, I know he will. And that is a Game of Thrones Sansa 5. And I hope that everyone listening is content that as a result of being the hero of this podcast, well, Emmett's also the hero too. He's the other, we're both heroes. We're both heroes of the podcast. I'm the villain. Everyone knows I'm the villain, Jeff. The shtick is transparent. Carry on. It's not that transparent. It's not transparent. Okay, it is actually though. But I want everyone to know that I did not throw a single lick of shade at Sansa in my summary. And you look, I didn't even try to pretend that this was a Cersei or Barristan chapter. And the words of the immortal Jeb Bush please clap. But really this chapter, it's outstanding in so many, so many ways. I mean, I love 
the escalating tension and Sansa's character growth that is emanating out of this chapter. And sure, she spends a long portion of this chapter in the margins observing the action of the characters, and she does a really good job of doing that. But she actually acts. She steps forward and she acts on behalf of her father. And really, I mean, I know we, we've talked about this every week, but despite knowing where the story is going ultimately, this chapter helps me appreciate Sansa more and more because I'm the hero. What did you think, Emmett? So we've spent the last few chapters racing around Westeros and beyond to check in with every storyline as Act 3 of A Game of Thrones begins. And now we're back in King's Landing, trying to pick up the pieces of everything that broke in Edward 14, Arya 4, and Sansa 4. This chapter is moving along two parallel tracks to do that, political and personal. On the one hand, as you say, Sansa 5 is about regime change in King's Landing. Cersei and Joffrey are cementing their hold on power at every level, or trying to, from the purely symbolic to aspirational threats to direct personnel changes. On the other hand, Sansa 5 is about Sansa taking a courageous step in an increasingly hostile and restrictive environment to try and save her father. Both threads come together at the end of the chapter in which Sansa pins those personal hopes to the new political regime, and of course is going to be hideously disappointed when we get to Ned's execution in Arya 5 and the aftermath in Sansa 6. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. What I think is one of the most fun aspects of this chapter, though, is that this chapter almost works as something resembling the false spring, where the threat of winter and death appear to be lifting, where Sansa's fairy tale conception of life as his song and her beliefs in the fairy tale prince are validated, only to be cut sinisterly short both in Varys' cynical retelling of Sansa's plea to Ned in the next chapter, and then ultimately in Ned's execution. Still, like you, dude, I, I applaud Sansa for taking the step forward to plead for her father's life despite knowing she's persona non grata and knowing the potential consequence for speaking out on Ned's behalf. And she's not stupid here. She's been, she's been manipulated by the cynical assholes of the small council and made to think that her father is a traitor. And yet to step forward to plead for Ned's life, that's super admirable. It's no chance and no choice. It's Brienne. It's Davos trying to smuggle Edric Storm away. Tragically for her, though, she doesn't know yet that the new regime is, as if you can even believe it, more cynical and much more sinister than the old regime. And that realization, unfortunately for Sansa, is going to be coming here in the next few chapters. As we've been saying about Sansa's arc in A Game of Thrones, it's really well constructed beat for beat in terms of pacing out this fall that Sansa's experiencing, this fall from grace and from childhood and from innocence. And now we are... We are one beat shy of the, the absolute fall. So things are just about to go completely wrong for Sansa. And this is the chapter where she's holding on to the last few sparks. And as you say, it's it's convincing by the end that Sansa is going to have this miraculous save the day moment because it has to be convincing. Otherwise, Ned's execution doesn't feel as horribly surprising and shocking as it does. Despite all the evidence pointing in that direction, because of course, as we've been discussing, there is a lot of foreshadowing and imagery and dialogue leading to Ned's death. But plot-wise, as a first-time reader, this chapter ends with that note of hope, Sansa's heart soaring. And she says, yes, I know, I, know, I know he'll acknowledge you as the king if you grant him mercy. So you have this last little hope of, of Ned making it out. But as you say, the chapter opens with this extremely unsettled metaphor of Robert's hunting tapestries being removed. The king is dead. Long live the king. And they're not just being removed. They're, quote, stacked in the corner in an untidy heap. It's this act of contempt and disrespect like Cersei tearing up Robert's will. And it's one of many ways in which Cersei signals a complete break from Robert's regime, even as she clings to the fig leaf that Joffrey is a Baratheon. I think like when you, you come back and read this after reading Cersei's chapters in A Feast for Crows, you really do get the sense that Cersei has a, quote, low, low cunning, as Tyrion will say in A Clash of Kings. And her low cunning here, I mean, she's able to manipulate folks like Sansa, and she does manipulate Ned in certain ways. Uh, but here we're not seeing her sign of being subtle at all. 
like this whole idea of tearing down the tearing down the tapestries and putting them in an untidy heap it's it's kind of foolish on cersei's part you know no doubt she's like really happy about like tearing all down all the, the visages of robert like ah look at this the hunting tapestries they're all coming down hell yeah this is great and you know she's like kind of just like drinking the sight of these tapestries being torn down and you know as much as we don't like cersei and she is a clear villain in the story we are a little bit sympathetic to her given the relationship that she had with robert as we talked about in our robert baratheon episode uh, on on the patreon side of things but maybe cersei just maybe you might want to keep those symbols of power in place to kind of demonstrate some sort of continuity and governance. And I mean, in a super visual society, we are going to talk about that at significant length towards the end of this podcast, but in a super visual society, like those symbols of power are so important in order to maintain that continuity, like that nothing is amiss, that there has been a transition in government, but still the policies of the old regime are existing and there's going to be sl- any, any change will be slow and incremental in, pro- in, in process. But here, no, it's extremely... Uh, it's it's extremely unsubtle what Cersei's doing, and it's extremely telling on the part for readers and for the nobles and small folk of Westeros that this is a new, new regime, and no one knows what's going to be emanating and coming from it. And she misses the opportunity not just to sway nobles and small folk in King's Landing, but also to prevent anyone else from seizing that symbolism. Because as you say, it's quite politically potent. Come a Clash of Kings, this political weakness will allow Renly instead to seize the symbolism of young Robert ahead of Robert's ostensible son and heir. And there's that little note at the Blackwater where Davos thinks to himself, he mourns the missed opportunity to fly Robert's banner. So the people will rejoice and think of this as a homecoming. R'hllor on Stannis' banner seems as much a stranger with a capital S to them as Joffrey does. And so these walls being stripped bare at the, at the opening of this chapter, at the opening of the new regime, represent these, this new regime status as a blank slate. It is a this, this wide-open canvas on which Cersei and Joffrey are setting out to paint in red. And I mean that in, in multiple respects, not just in terms of the blood, but also in terms of that Lannister red. Yeah, it's really cool, though, because like in addition to the walls being stripped bare of Robert's tapestries, we also have the regime change symbolized by the clothing that Joffrey wears when he's marching into the throne room. So Joffrey is clothed accordingly in black velvet slashed with a crimson cape and cloth of gold. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. This really reminds me of the way that Joffrey is introduced in terms of the sigil that he has painted on his shield. Something that John points out to Arya in Arya's first chapter in A Game of Thrones, where he says, an ornate, where, where Arya thinks, an ornate shield had been embroidered on the prince's padded surcoat. No doubt the needlework was exquisite. The arms were divided down the middle. On one side was the crown stag of the royal house. On the other, the Lion of Lannister. The Lannisters are proud, John observed. You'd think the royal sigil would be sufficient, but no. He makes his mother's house equal in honor to the king. So Joffrey's clothing is again reemphasizing that point that Cersei's pride is kind of coming to the fore. She can't have Joffrey wearing the black and gold of the Baratheons. Lannister Crimson needs to be there too. Equal honor to Robert Baratheon yet again. It's, it's kind of funny. It's kind of similar. We talked about this in Daenerys' chapter after the death of Viserys. How Viserys' ghost is hanging over the whole chapter. Well, here you get the real sense that Robert's ghost is hanging over all of the political doings and goings on in King's Landing. It's this idea of the power vacuum and everything that flows from that that Martin will really explore at length in A Feast for Crows, which as a book is kind of built around that concept. What do you do when Balin Greyjoy is dead, when Tywin Lannister is dead, when Oberyn Martell is dead, when this, these pillars of society and individuality are gone? And obviously that's something that Martin is drawing from not only in real world history, but also dramas like Hamlet, which are, are built around the kind of 
sense of your foundations being shaken when the central figure is gone, both psychologically and politically. But in terms of how the Lannisters intend to fill this void, you have this, they're summoning all their actual and potential enemies to court. And this fulfills several functions, both for the reader and in-universe. For the reader, it fills us in on the various factions at play for the war that's about to really erupt, including ones we haven't met, like the Martells. It reminds us that Arya is at large, as well as Beric Dondarrion and Renly and Loras and some other people that we have met. It gives us a sense, really, of how outnumbered the Lannisters are, with threats in every direction that they have to respond to, as Tywin will lay out for us at Book's End as things get even worse for them after Robb Stark shows up in the Riverlands and repeatedly kicks Lannister ass. Uh, this list potentially yields hostages for the Lannisters if anyone fell for it, which, of course, they really don't. But more to the point, even if no one falls for it, Joff has to act legitimate to be legitimate in these uncertain, fluid times in which the political status of the regime is a blank slate, uh, a wall with no painting on it. Power is a trick, after all, as far as this, and sometimes you have to act as though you have authority in order to convince others you do. Something we were talking about with Rob taking charge of the Northern Army. You have to put your best foot forward as though you're in charge for people to start acting as though you're in charge. And conduct really does count in this process of public politics, hence Damon was the better man being the refrain of Blackfire supporters during that civil war. As much as we you know, might be tempted to reduce everything to crude power politics, Joffrey's behavior as we go through a clash of kings lends visible credence to Stannis' accusations and turns the mob against him, almost leading to his death and the overthrow of his regime. No, it's a really great point. You know, it, it's it's a really interesting contrast to Tyrion's last chapter because in that chapter, you get the sense that Lannister power is overwhelming, is hegemonic, and is really driving the war forward. But when you actually back up and take a 10,000-foot view of what's happening in Westeros at this particular point in the story... Lannisters have a whole lot of enemies, and they're not concentrated in the north and the riverlands. They've got potential enemies in the form of the Martells, who have a long-standing grievance, as far as he's going to talk about to Ned in the next chapter, regarding the the death of Ilya Martell and her children. But their two most potent threats are the, in the form of Renly and Stannis. Now, at this point here, likely the Cersei's in the same camp as Tywin was in thinking that Renly and Stannis are going to join forces, and they'll be able to lead a combined army against King's Landing. So they're surrounded, they're outnumbered, and they really need to kind of seize those symbols of power and seize legitimacy through bringing these people to King's Landing. And they have to act the part of being of being the new royal power in King's Landing. Absolutely. And as well as summoning potential hostages to court, the Lannisters are also trying to seize power by making some personnel changes, which get increasingly controversial as they are read out. Tywin is hand, as you say, there's no surprises there. Everyone saw that coming. Cersei as regent definitely disturbs some people because that's a position of direct authority over the power of the monarchy for several years. But she's powerful and established enough that they have to swallow it for now. The real outrage comes with Janos Slint, of course, as Lord of Harrenhal, because fuck that, he's a butcher's boy. He's like Micah. It's a good class marker and to note the bitter irony here, which is that Cersei and Janos are not being challenged on their actual sins, for which we, the audience, have been primed to dislike them. Instead, as you say, it's because she's a woman and he's a commoner. And that's so ironic because being a woman and a commoner in Westerosi high society is the only sympathetic thing about these two. The restrictions Cersei has to put up with because of her gender and the bullshit someone like Janos Slint would have to face by moving up in class, as we see with a much more sympathetic character like Davos. That's the only thing that's sympathetic about these otherwise fairly monstrous people. And yet they get these rumbles of discontent about their gender and class, respectively. Tywin has done things just as bad as these two, if not worse, but no one says a word. So to get back to the tapestries, their fall, you know, literally from the wall, also gets at the fall of the dream they represented for Robert, the cherished chivalric ideal of his faded youth that we spent a lot of time talking about with the Ned chapters. 
And Sansa, too, shares that same dream, albeit from a much different perspective. So this, this dream, this these tapestries you can imagine Robert look at and smiling to himself so he could ignore his gut and his wife, that dream is being torn down to reveal this terrifying blankness. So that's that's the world as this morally neutral canvas on which you have to choose what to paint. You don't get to just project all your moral worth into songs and stories and assume their happy endings are legit. You have to decide, and Robert never got around to doing so for himself. And someone like Littlefinger, when his dreams broke, he chose horribly. So you get this this setup and this question that I think comes to dominate Sansa's storyline of, of what is she going to do? What is she going to make of the world once her dreams break? What is she going to cling to? And can it be better than someone like Littlefinger or ultimately Robert? When Ned looks at those tapestries in Eddard 14, he thinks about how all those tapestries had their scenes of hunt and battle. And that, to me, speaks to Robert in his prime, that kind of horned god, muscled as a maiden's fantasy type character. All that stuff is being stripped away. And, you know, it, it's interesting, right? Because you could take the perspective here that Robert's image is being stripped away, that the person who he actually is is being revealed here. But at the same time, like the metaphor only partially works because the metaphor, what's replacing those, what's replacing the image of Robert is as much of a lie as the one that Robert presented to the court and to all of Westeros in, exactly. in the preceding years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a... But I do think like when we see like the dragon skulls being replaced, you see the glory of the Targaryen regime being replaced by Robert and his hunting tapestries and the glory of Robert's wars and battles and his hunts all being replaced by bare walls. It, it's really doing a lot of groundwork and kind of showing the change in Westeros and a change not necessarily for the better. As much as Robert was a bad king, and I think we can all agree that Robert was a somewhat bad king, he's not going to be as bad as Joffrey is. And he's not going to be as bad as Cersei and all the small counselors that are left in place and left in power in King's Landing. So Sansa does have to choose to be better, to be better than those who are sitting in small that are sitting at the small council table and the person who is sitting up high on the Iron Throne. She has to be better than all these cynical adults who learned all the wrong lessons from the world not turning out how they thought. And this chapter beautifully contrasts Sansa's last few sparks of hope against the grim realities of the situation. As we said before, those are extinguished over the course of Arya Five and Sansa Six. You know, she assumes Arya escaped home in that heartbreaking moment when she thinks Arya made, made it back to Winterfell, and we know better. She thinks Joffrey and Cersei love her, but no, my daughter, they very much do not. <laughs> Poor Sansa. She keeps mouthing her courtesies and following the rules, but everyone's turning away from her and treating her like a ghost, like a plague, like a traitor. And politically, of course, this reflects the reality that the Starks are just persona non grata in a Lannister regime, so just no one wants to be seen with her, associating with her, because they can feel Joffrey and Cersei's eyes on them now. Personally speaking, it feels like like the uneasy beginning to a nightmare. If things about to just go horribly wrong, the little hints before the real thing arrives, of course, with Ned's execution and the aftermath. But I mean, it's, it's not all just because something horrible is going to happen to Sansa. One of the reasons Sansa feels like an outcast in the royal court is because, unlike most of these assholes, she's actually got a good heart. Yeah. Hence her heart going out for Barristan when everyone else is laughing at him. And she notes that, oh, his, even his former brothers, his, for, his fellow Kingsguard are laughing at him. That must hurt the most because she knows what it means to him. And then she's kneeling on his white cloak while adjusting Joffrey on his, quote, fearsome black throne. So there's some clear color politics going on here. So I think it's it's more complicated than just Sansa, the kind of naive fool who needs to be taught that court politics are brutal and you have to be brutal to match them. But a sense of that she's a real candle in the darkness here in terms of her her desire to help and her, her desire for mercy, as we'll get into towards the end of the chapter. And that, that makes her a rarity in King's Landing, and she has to try to hold on to that spirit somehow. 
And one of the first pivotal events that's going to happen that's going to lead Sans to be like, hey, something is off about all of this and about the people here is the dismissal of Sir Barristan Selmy from the White Cloak and from the King's Guard. Yeah, this is, I think, probably the most memorable and beloved part of this chapter, the dismissal of Barristan scene. As you were saying in your synopsis, every line feels kind of chiseled into yeah. stone and instantly iconic. And it's significant in a number of respects. For the new regime, it's another break with the old, and an ill-considered one for sure. As Tywin will say in Tyrion's last chapter in the book, Barristan's presence lends legitimacy to anyone he's fighting for. That's why Ned handed Robert's will to him in Edward 14, mm-hmm. because... Despite Cersei's blithe assertion of power politics, symbols really do matter as far as this whole process of taking over during a civil war. But Cersei just can't control Barristan. She can't convince herself that he's a sycophant like Sandor, so he's got to go. And, you know, that's one of her political weaknesses, that she can't work well in a coalition. And that, as we were saying earlier, well, she has good reason to worry about the Tyrells being overproud. The way her logic works and her mindset seems to work in Feast, it seems like she'd be incapable of having a coalition with anybody, even if all they were interested in was in Sunshine and Rainbows. Right. Cersei just can't share power or be with anyone who's not under her thumb and Barristan's not under her thumb. Yeah. For him, of course, it's this horrible humiliation and rejection. It's, it's confirmation of, as we'll get into in much greater length when he joins up with Danny. His subterranean doubt that he's been doing this Kingsguard shit all wrong for quite a while. Yeah. As he notes, though, it's not sparked by his own actions, but by the Lannisters. He, he confesses to Danny if, if he hadn't been fired here, especially in this public humiliating way, he might still be at Joffrey's side and then Tommen's now. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's Sandor, who we haven't really touched on much so far, but he, he, I think he's a significant character in this scene because this is... The culmination of a childhood dream he has long since abandoned. His childhood dreams of knights, like that little kid would gasp with wonder at the idea that he was going to grow up to, to get a white cloak and join the Kingsguard. But then Gregor walked into the room, took that toy away, and shoved Sandor's face in the fire. So, as such, his feelings about joining the Knightly Order of Westeros are complex, shall we say? I don't get the sense from this scene that he was told beforehand that he was going to be offered a white cloak. Like, right. It takes a long time to answer. Like, it feels like Joffrey and Cersei just sprang this on him because, again, they don't think of him as a person. They think of him as a dog. Right. So why would he need to be informed of this this new toy he's going to get? But, you know, he notes he has nothing to sacrifice, suggesting it's meaningless to him because, you know, that's his, his public face is he hates knighthood and it's all bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. But that white cloak comes to mean a great deal to Sansa after he leaves it with her, after the Blackwater. And it, it seems to change Sandor, too, to a certain extent, as Jamie notes that cloak tends to do, for better or worse. And I think there really is something profound about the cloak passing specifically from Barristan, every inch the perfect true knight, to Sandor, the blatant not-knight. But both these men actually have light and dark in them. They're more similar than they appear, more similar than either of them I care to admit. Barristan talks about how he gave up the woman he was supposed to marry. He gave up a place in House Selmy in the Stormlands. He gave up all of these things. The, the cloak was draped on him by Sir Gerald Hightower, and Sir Arthur Dane was in the Kingsguard Knights, and he had served for three kings, and like he's going through his resume in front of the entire court. His page from the White Book, yeah. He's, he's listing it out because he's, he's realizing, oh, and that all led here. Right. It was all for nothing because this is how it ends. Yeah, that's how it ends for him is being stripped and being embarrassed in front of all of the court. But then in, in contrast, those standard games, like when they give him the White Cloak, he's like, you want it? He's like, yeah, sure. Why not? I got no lands. I got no wife. You know, that's fine. But I'm not going to be a sir. On the surface, it's very dissimilar the way that Barristan and, Sa- and Sander are. But as you say, though, they are both similar in that they both have light and dark to them. As Barristan is going to do a significant amount of reflection of in A Dance with Dragons, his service to Ares was hard. And he feels that he dishonored himself and he dishonored his vows by protecting his king. And I think it's a really great 
dynamic that Martin plays with in A Song of Ice and Fire about how vows are in conflict with themselves. Barrison's vow to Eris II and his vow to serve and protect him meant that he had to stand outside and potentially be witness to the horrible atrocities that Eris committed against Rayella. Barrison was there when Rickard Stark was burned by Eris, when Brandon was strangled to death by Eris II. These are these made Barrison's vows extremely hard in his later years. But to kind of like double all the way back to your point about how Joffrey's behavior will turn the small folk and merchants of King's Landing against him, Joffrey then, after Barrison leaves and he says, ah, well, you know, maybe you'll polish the throne before Stannis comes to sit on it. Joffrey then demands that Barrison be seized and questioned. And does do people are like, yes, let's go get that guy. No, it, it, they're not. It's met with total silence, which is signaling that, uh, hey, is, is this kid mentally stable enough to be giving these types of commands? I love that moment of silence because that's when you see how fragile power really is when the room almost decides Joffrey isn't king. And you can feel that just fragility in the air as, as all this pomp and circumstance Cersei's putting into the room, the imagery and the clothes and the new appointments and this, these bold declarations that everyone has to give them hostages. It all almost falls apart until Janos Slint steps in. And Janos Slint steps in because unlike a lot of people in the room, he has buy-in. He's already invested in the Lannister right. regime because it's benefiting him personally. So, of course, he's the one to step in. So it's a great illustration of exactly how the politics are working here. But then there's another whole level beyond simp- the simple dismissal of Sir Barristan Selmy. And we have to talk about the dismissal of Barristan in the context of the Varas Illyrio conspiracy. So... Of all the counselors here, Varas is the one who tries not to be outwardly antagonistic towards Barristan. You know, he's the one that says like, oh, Sir Barristan, we don't think that your service was in vain or anything like that. We have a nice retirement home for you out in Lannisport. You know, a great place, servants and food and everything like that. The best kind of retirement that you could possibly hope for. But then you get some more information when Tyrion arrives in the Clash of Kings and Varas's particular role in the whole affair. So... Again, this is the scene where Tyrion arrives and he's talking with Cersei alone in the small council chambers. And Tyrion says, his grace has a unique way of winning the hearts of his subjects, Tyrion said with a crooked smile. Was it Joffrey's wish to dismiss Sir Barristan Selmy from his king's guard too? Cersei sighed. Ah, Joffrey wanted someone to blame for Robert's death. Varys suggested Sir Barristan. Why not? It gave Jaime command of the king's guard and seat on the small council and allowed Joff to throw a bone to his dog. He is very fond of Sander Clegane. We were prepared to offer Selmy some land and a tower house, more than the useless old fool deserved. So when you actually get some more information in A Clash of Kings, it's very much Varys who is really who is the one who is really behind Barristan's dismissal, despite him being seemingly the most genial of the counselors. Kind of reminds me of the way that Lothar Frey comes across in A Storm of Swords as being the most genial, happy-go-lucky guy when he's dealing with Rob and Catelyn at River Run. But at the same time, as Varys is the one who suggested the Barristan dismissal, Lothar was the one who was plotting the mechanics of the Red Wedding with Roose Bolton, as we find out from the A Storm of Swords epilogue, where he was the one who had been planning with Roose Bolton from all along, all the way down to the songs which would be played. The other thing that's kind of like a little bit wacky about all this, and I don't even know if this is a real thing or not, but it occurs to me that when we get Tywin's perspective about Barristan's dismissal in Tyrion's ninth chapter in A Game of Thrones, Tywin doesn't seem read in on his alleged plan to offer a Selmy an estate outside of Lannisport. And then Tywin says, and dismissing Selmy, what was the sense in that? Yes, the man was old, but the name of Barristan the Bold still has meaning in the realm. He lent honor to any man he served. So... Did Tywin really have a retirement package in mind for Barristan, or was he just kind of like cut out of the loop? Kind of like the whole idea of there's easier to ask forgiveness than permission sort of thing. 
Now, I guess it's always possible that Tywin is washing his hands of the whole affair. You know, his basic MO, as we talked about last week. Who, me? No, no, not me. That was someone else who did the stupid thing. Always someone else. So I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, you make a good case for both sides, honestly. It is absolutely Tywin's MO to pretend that a mistake he made wasn't his and to fob it off on his subordinates and insist he'd always had the obviously right path in mind. So I could see him trying to cover this up now that it's played out poorly. On the other hand, you're making a strong case here for, for Varus being so involved in this part of the project that I think this might have been his concoction specifically designed to piss Barristan off and get him out of the Lannister regime so he could use him as an asset. The crux of it all is that Barristan's dismissal helps Varus and Illyrio in undermining Joffrey's reign as seen in Tywin's comment about it. Then Tyrion kind of underscores, underscores this in A Clash of Kings where he talks about how uh, how Barristan and Jaime are the only survivors of Aerys Targaryen's original seven. The small folk talk of him the same way they talk of Serban the Mirror Shield and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. What do you imagine they'll think when they see Barristan the Bold riding beside Robb Stark or Stannis Baratheon? And then there's a few more curiosities here as well and some more backstory that George, I think, will likely explore in The Winds of Winter. We know that Barristan eventually kind of plotted around King's Landing, was present at Ned Stark's execution. But then he eventually ended up in Pentos, of all places, at the House of Magister Illyrio before proceeding on to Karth with Belwas and Grolio. So did Varys help smuggle Barristan out of Westeros into Illyrio? I mean, probably, right? I mean, that's basically how Tyrion gets to Illyrio in that Varys smuggles him out aboard a ship, and he ends up in a wine cast that shows up at Illyrio, in Pentos at Illyrio's manse. I think a lot of people had assumed that this is explicitly revealed in the books, but but it's not. So I kind of wonder why what why George is saving this reveal and what, it, what it's for. I mean, you have the whole Barristan Turncloak theory, which is a favorite theory of mine that could play a part in kind of augmenting some of the idea that Barristan will turn cloak and that Varys helped Barristan get across the narrow sea and to get him in the service of Daenerys. But again, there's even more oddities than that. Like why send Barristan to Daenerys instead of young Griff? But uh, that's a conversation. It's a much more in-depth conversation we'll say for Danny's final chapter in The Clash of Kings. Agreed. There's so many kind of intertwining strands with Varus and Illyrian, as we've alluded before. Some of it doesn't quite work out timeline-wise, so we've got to keep an eye on that. But for the function within this chapter, absolutely, it's it's definitely worth teasing out that Varus seems to be subtly shifting things in the favor of his conspiracy behind the scenes, even as he seems to be pushing Barristan in another direction. He does it in such an obviously obsequious fashion designed mm-hmm. to anger Barristan. When Barristan has those great lines about a hall to die in and men to bury me. Like Varus knows Barristan well enough to know that's exactly how he would react to such an offer, that he would he would spit on it and think of it as a complete disrespect to everything he was. But finally we arrive at the actual plot function of the chapter, which is Sansa's plea for mercy for Ned. Now, on one level, this is clearly being stage-managed to a large degree in terms of everyone's responses to it. Just as with Sansa 4, the way the adults are talking very stiff and mannerly more so than usual suggests they've already decided what they were going to say, that they knew Sansa was going to come forward. And that, as as Varys will say in, in the next chapter when he's outlining to Ned in the Black Cell, Cersei wants to neutralize Ned at this point rather than kill him. She's not about to touch a hair on Sansa's head at this particular moment. So this, this serves her interest so well that you can kind of sense Cersei coaching Sansa and Joffrey behind the scenes. And you can look at it kind of cynically as Cersei getting one over on Sansa again. But Sansa's emotions in the scene are genuine and her courage is real. And I think it should be recognized within that context. After all, Joffrey himself will go completely off script when it comes to Ned's execution. So Martin's not suggesting we should ignore the kid's decisions entirely. I think instead he is he's zeroing in on Sansa's choices to be courageous in a helpless situation such as when she saved Sordantos' life in her first chapter in The Clash of Kings. And this ties, of course, over to the overall theme of mercy. Ned put it all on the line for mercy for Cersei's kids and subtextually for John, 
knowing that Robert would kill John every bit as much as he'd kill Cersei's kids once he learned the truth about them. And now we have his own child asking mercy for him in turn, this great, sweet generational moment. You know, Sansa thinks to herself, I, I must be strong as my lady mother, and she's also doing what Ned would do. So Sansa's living up to her, her parents' examples, or trying to. And this is the same thing she'll do with the Blackwater when she asks the gods for mercy for Sandor, that he's no true knight, but he saved me all the same. Gentle the rage within him if you can. And she's arguing not that Ned is innocent, but that regardless, love and compassion should rule the day. And I think it's important that Joff personally betrays her, not out of adult Machiavellian calculation, but out of this heedless, childish cruelty that is itself the flip side to Sansa's perspective. Of course, behind that cruelty, that mocking smile he gives at Ned's execution, is Littlefinger and his dead dreams, all moths and pomegranates and sweet sleep, the, the kind of the horror adult side of, of what you do when the songs and fairy tales don't work out. Again, the challenge is for Sansa to go beyond her current naivete, but without becoming Cersei and Littlefinger. She has to not be broken by her worldview's failure. She has to learn the right lessons from what she loses and faces in King's Landing, holding on to compassion while specifically shedding the dangerous assumption that the power structures around her will reflect that compassion back at her and hers. You know, so many people take the perspective from Sansa's story, especially in the Game of Thrones, that the, the songs and the fairy tales are all lies. But they're not lies in the sense that they don't represent good and kind of the ideal that society and Western society should be aspiring to. You know, I, I think we we get so kind of wrapped up that George is just kind of doing this grim, dark, breaking of tropes sort of thing. And look at Sansa. She loves the fairy tales and the stories and all of her stories and fairy tales turn out to be lies. But her asking for mercy for Ned is not, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of smart on her part. I mean, she's doing it in a public context so that Joffrey has the ability to seem merciful and to kind of contrast his own conduct with regards to Barristan here so that he can kind of recapture that kind of groundswell of goodwill from the few nobles that are left in the court of King's Landing that he, they can be like, oh, well, this kid's actually a merciful guy. He's the guy who's going to, you know, spare Ned Stark from execution. And that's something worth aspiring to. That's very Robert-like in a sense, right? You know, Robert was famous for pardoning the lords who had fought against him, the lords uh, Fell and Grandison and the other guy who had fought against him at Storm, at, Storm, at, um, at Summerhall. Yet those, those guys, Robert defeated in battle, yet turned them to his side and brought them to his, his cause. And they end up fighting for Robert at against against the Tyrells in, in the next battle. Maybe Sansa should have had the perspective that Joffrey's not all she's cracked up to be, given that she's seen Joffrey acting in certain ways, in certain contexts leading up to this. But at the same time, Joffrey has a good enough sense to kind of stage manage his evil and his psychopathic behavior that it's not the thing that's always coming out over and over and over again. Because we do see elements of Joffrey being the gallant prince singing that song in that high voice back in Sansa's first chapter in A Game of Thrones. The guy who escorts her to the feast and is giving her wine and laughing and being the gallant prince that she always knew him to be, in quotation marks. So when she's asking Joffrey here, she's asking him in that context. She does know better at some level because that's the tone of this chapter as we were talking about earlier, the sense of a nightmare slowly unfolding around her and everyone turning away. And that's why she's nervous and says, I have to be brave, I have to be strong because... There are something that's going wrong, but she's still trying to do the right thing. And, you know, we, we titled this episode in the court of the Crimson King after the King Crimson song of that same name, which is using a lot of movies and shows to signify a kind of detached, imperious elite. It's used in the, the movie Children of Men that way to uh, over a scene of artists who have cut themselves off from this apocalyptic society and don't care where it goes anymore. 
And that's the kind of society Sansa's in. But you're right within that context, within the context that she thinks she's operating in. Her move makes perfect sense. So I think that about uh, covers us for the chapter itself and takes us to a foreshadowing and groundwork. But what I want to start with there is, is not not really groundwork. It's kind of a reverse. It's it's a great misdirection. I love that Martin has Barristan mention Stannis here, not because it's, it's fun to get a, a Stannis mention and mention that frames him as a badass who's inevitably going to take the throne, but because by having Barristan said that, Martin is setting up for her to think Barristan's going to join Stannis. That's where he's going when he leaves the Red Keep. He's going to go off the Dragonstone and, and, and be by Stannis' side in the wars to come. And that, is, of course, that doesn't happen. And this does serve as groundwork for this, this motif we get in Clash of Kings where everyone is wondering where Barristan is and what king he's going to join. And of course, at, at book's end, he turns up in disguise with a monarch that none of them expected. Yeah. And I, I do think it also does a great amount of groundwork for Martin to kind of continue to build up Stannis, a character who's not going to even appear in the Game of Thrones. That you have a character like Barrison being like, yeah, Stannis is going to come. He's going to take your throne out from under you. So we already have this sense that Stannis is an important, strong character. And then I, I just I just love the fact that the kind of the whole where's Barry question, we do get the kind of the whole hilarious story of how Janice Lent made a whole botch of his attempt to arrest Barristan when Barristan relays the story to Daenerys in A Dance with Dragons, where he says, when I reached the stables, the gold cloaks tried to seize me. Joffrey had offered me a tower to die in, but I had spurned his gift. So now he meant to offer me a dungeon. The commander of the city watch himself confronted me, emboldened by my empty scabbard. But he only had three men. Only. Okay, Barrison. With him. And I still had my knife. I slashed one man's face open when he laid his hands upon me and rode through the others. As I spurred for the gates, I heard Janice Lynch shouting for them to go after me. And I also think it's funny, too, in terms of Barristan. That after Barristan is, dis- is dismissed, seemingly he goes immediately to the White Tower and he recounts the final deeds of, of his glorious reign as the Lord Commander of the King's Guard. That is the most Barristan thing ever, as Jamie notes, that he is, he's such a nerd and such a fanboy of the King's Guard that he had to fussily take his time to record his own dismissal, even if men are like like pounding on the door and shouting bloody threats. He's just got to finish his little note in the books because who else is going to do it? I'm the Lord Commander. It's my right. job. That's the most embarrassing thing imaginable. Uh, elsewhere in the scene, we get, quote, funny drunken Sir Dantos, who tries to wave to Sansa here. He's the only one who who's, seems to still notice her in, in the court. And, of course, he's going to have a lot more involvement in her storyline come a Clash of Kings and the Storm of Swords. It's interesting that he singles her out despite social pressure not to here because she's going to do the same thing for him, albeit under hmm. a lot more pressure in the next book, as I was saying earlier. It's also kind of fascinating, too, that Littlefinger is seen chatting amiably with Dantos in this chapter, signaling their relationship and foreshadowing the Storm of Swords reveal that Dantos was Littlefinger's cat's ball all along. Like I said in the Catelyn chapter, like the emotional beats are the things that bring me back. It's also kind of the small details that also kind of be are, when I'm reading, rereading a Game of Thrones, I'm like, oh. George, I see what you're doing here, man. Like, that's cool that, that you have this scene that helps to set up the reveal that's going to occur in, you know, two books from now. As we were saying in Sansa 4, you, you start to see this palpable shift away from events that are just about this book and more towards Martin setting up events in books two and three as they start to take shape in his mind. And you can you can definitely see that, I think, with the court politics in the Sansa chapter. Speaking of, of setting up characters to come, when we look at Pycelle's list of recalcitrant vassals, this, this features the one and only mention of Duran Martell in this book, the first mention of Prince Duran of Dorne. Uh, the Martells as a family have been brought up before in terms of their involvement in the, the tragic backstory with Rhaegar's family, but this is the first mention of the man who leads Dorne, and this sets up not only the offstage role he will play in the early stages of the War of Five Kings, where he's keeping his army in his hands and 
subtly threatening everyone involved, but also, of course, his and his family's direct involvement in the plot, starting with Tyrion's offer of Marcella in A Clash of Kings. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In in the Game of Thrones appendix, they do list out the full Martell family. They even include characters like Quentin and Arianne, characters that we will not see until A Feast for Crows. So you do kind of wonder, like, did George have something in mind plot-wise related to them at this point? You, you you can't be 100% certain because a lot of what emanates from the end of A Storm of Swords is that, again, Martin had planned this five-year gap between these books, and we would be picking up with the characters after five years. We still have the same story with the Dornish and the Martells and Ariane and Doran and Quentin. I think at some level, yes, but at the same time, it's not altogether clear to me. Something about Quentin's story, especially the way it's this kind of self-contained deconstruction that reflects a lot back on the first book. There's elements of Ned and his character and of Sansa in this book. So that makes me think Martin might have always had that role in Quentin for mind, even as obviously the specifics changed hugely with the abandonment of the five-year gap and the whole Mirren is not he had to store through. He might have always had that theme in mind, if not the structure. So I think that about takes us to our theory slash discussion portion of the episode. And the, the one question that comes out of this chapter, of course, is what is up with all those tapestries? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it seems like a minor plot point, but it seems to be picking up some significant plot relevance and importance as when we get into A Feast for Crows. So after this chapter, it's interesting, right? So Robert's hunting tapestries, they go missing for four books until they're strangely, strangely brought up again in A Feast for Crows, where Cersei receives a letter from Littlefinger about the goings-on in the Vale. So Littlefinger's recounting about the Lord's Declaran and about the troubles that he He's having in the Vale itself. But then he, but then Sir Harris Swift asks, Does Lord Baelish seek our help? And Cersei answers, Not as yet. In truth, he seems quite unconcerned. His last letter mentions the rebels only briefly before beseeching me to ship him some old tapestries of Roberts. And this seems like an odd request from Littlefinger. But he alludes to this being part of some sort of grander conspiracy when he talks with Sansa about this later in A Feast for Crows, where he says, whereas where Littlefinger says, though I should not speak harshly of Cersei, she is sending me some splendid tapestries. Isn't that kind of her? The mention of the queen's name made Sansa stiffen. She's not kind. She scares me. If she should learn where I am, oh, I might have to remove her from the game sooner than I'd planned, provided she does not remove herself first. Peter teased her with a little smile. In the Game of Thrones, even the humblest pieces can have wills of their own. Sometimes they refuse to make moves you plan for them. Mark that well, Elaine. It's a lesson that Cersei Lannister has yet to learn. And then, in the Elaine sample chapter from The Winds of Winter, the tapestries show up again in extremely dramatic fashion. It's actually not. So the quote is, Lord Nestor was showing Lady Waxley his prized tapestries with their scenes of hunt and chase, the same panels that had once hung in the Red Keep of King's Landing when Robert sat the Iron Throne. Joffrey had them taken down, and they had languished in some cellar until Peter Baelish arranged for them to be brought to the Vale as a gift for Nestor Royce. And not only were the hangings beautiful, but the high steward delighted in telling anyone who'd listened that they'd once belonged to a king. I guess that's it, yeah. Question answered. Episode done. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thanks. And no, actually, you know, kind of sarcasm aside, but could the tapestries be a simple bribe to keep Nestor Royce on Littlefinger's side? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I guess so. But for me, I don't think this is the last we're going to hear about those tapestries. You know, as Littlefinger alluded to Sansa, they seem to be part of something a little bit bigger than a simple bribe to keep Nestor Royce on Littlefinger's side. Nestor's always been pro- has already been promised the Gates of the Moon, so that seems like a good enough bribe to keep Nestor on his side there. 
But could those tapestries be part of a larger conspiracy to set the Vale Lords against Cersei? You know, I, I think that's a possibility. So in an illiterate society, the tapestries depicting Robert in hunt and in battle could prove a potent weapon that Littlefinger could use to raise the Vale on Sansa's behalf. You know, we see something similar in A Clash of Kings where Stannis, uh, despite all the wrong opinions to the contrary, he didn't want Edric Storm because he wanted to burn the boy, at least initially, that came in a storm of swords. But before his defeat on the Blackwater, Stannis wanted Edric as proof that Joffrey and Tommen weren't his brother's children, where Davos is saying to him, yet you have no proof of this incest, no more than you did a year ago. And Stannis replies, there is proof of a sort at Storm's End. Robert's bastard, the one he fathered on my wedding night in the very bed they'd made up for me and my bride. Delena was a form and a maiden when he took her. So Robert acknowledged the babe. Edric Storm, they call him. He is said to be the very image of my brother. If men were to see him and then look again at Joffrey and Tommen, they could not help but wonder, I would think. So in similar ways, the tapestries could be physical evidence for the Veil Lords that Cersei's kids are incest babies. And especially when you consider another piece of evidence that Littlefinger might have in the Veil. In the form of Maya Stone. While she's not an acknowledged bastard of Robert's, pretty much everyone from Ned to Littlefinger to Varys to Cersei knows that she's one of Robert's, quote, byblows. And I think you can tell just by looking at her, all the Baratheons, just like uh, Edric or Gendry, have that immediate Baratheon look. And then you take into account Sansa, who mentions in Feast, and I believe in her uh, sample wins chapter, that her hair dye is sending to run out and she can't pass herself off as dark-haired Elaine Stone, Littlefinger's bastard daughter anymore. So that would, her showing off her tully hair and coming out fully as Sansa Stark would dovetail so beautifully with the hair telling as well for the Baratheons. The hair is strong, you could say, <laughs> replacing the seed is strong from, from John Aaron. So yeah, I think I think that that's a great idea in terms of what the tapestries are. On the surface, it's just a, a bribe and that's already resolved. But if Littlefinger is, is trying to create a political groundswell behind the North and the Vale and maybe the Riverlands being an independent kingdom again, surrounding Sansa and Harry, having reason to specifically dismiss and break from Tommen would definitely help with that. It would also provide a nice way to fit Maya Stone into the larger plot, because while she's a really fun character, she hasn't been super plot-centric, other than providing evidence of Robert having a bastard, so that would tie her in nicely. And we all want to see Maya Stone rise high in this world because she's one of the best minor characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, and I will die on that hill if needs be. For sure. I hope she marries Lothar Brune and they have many perfect goat bear children. <laughs> that sounds like a nice life to have. So I think that about wraps us up for a Game of Thrones Sansa 5. Thanks to everyone for listening to us. Rate and review us as always on iTunes and Google Play and wherever you find our fine podcast. We always appreciate that. Check out our Patreon, as we said earlier, on patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Patrons get exclusive episodes every month, early releases of our weekly episodes, show notes, and more. Follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or send us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of IceandFire.wordpress.com. So join us next week for Game of Thrones Edward 15, our farewell. I can't believe I'm saying that chapter for dear old Ned Stark down in the black cells. But I, I, even though I'm already sad, I'm excited to say that we will be joined by our very good friend and someone that you all know, or if you don't know, you need to know. And that is Lauren, a.k.a. Shakes of Thrones on Twitter, a.k.a. Shakespeare of Thrones. And that's going to be a whole lot of fun to talk about. Some of the Shakespearean elements 
in this final Ned chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire. Lauren does great work on Twitter when she's comparing Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire scenes to scenes and quotes in Shakespeare. She's written some great essays, and I'm super excited to pick her brain about some of the Shakespearean themes in A Song of Ice and Fire as a whole, but specifically in Ned Stark's character arc and how it ends. It's a terrific chapter, probably my favorite Ned chapter. We haven't had a guest in a while, not since LML with Danny Five, so it's, it's going to be a great episode. I can't wait.